0: This is JFF's Apprenticeship by the State with Joseph Hollins, the former State Apprenticeship Director of Louisiana. We will talk to State Apprenticeship Directors from around the country to help you learn how to work with their agencies to start a registered apprenticeship program in your community. Today, we go to Virginia with Patricia Morrison. Trish, how are you? I'm doing
1: great, Joseph.
0: Trish, can you tell us what agency is the Office of Apprenticeship housed in, and how many people are on your staff? And and when I talk to the directors, we always talk about how traditionally you have an apprenticeship director and you have an ATR, and those are the two traditional positions, but kind of focus on some of the different positions that you have in your apprenticeship office.
1: Sure. Well, I am the director of the Division of Registered Apprenticeship. And we are housed in the Department of Labor and Industry, and we have been here since 1938. What I like about this arrangement is that we are also supported by the wage and hour labor law division for the state, as well as the OSHA program. So we can really concentrate on safety and convey any information about compliance with hazardous occupations or wage and hour law information right within our own agency. So there's me, and I have an assistant director. I have 15 regional registered apprenticeship consultants. I have two education specialists, so they facilitate matching up or sourcing related technical instruction for the sponsors, and I also have uh, two program support technicians.
0: And so your program support technicians, those are kind of like your ATRs?
1: The ATRs in and Virginia are called the RACs, the Registered Apprenticeship Consultant. yes.
0: That's a great number of people on your staff. Has that expanded recently under the Apprenticeship Expansion Grants, or you, you've always had that number?
1: Well, no, because we did not qualify for the expansion grant, the only grant we had previous to that was the accelerator grant. And most of those grants, you're not allowed to really supplant any of your state funding. So, we have always been uh, regionally supported with that staff because Virginia really likes its one-on-one customer service traditions. So, that is you know, the division I inherited and I'm I'm glad I inherited it that way because um, it helps us build relationships all along the way.
0: Trish, I know that every state with registered apprenticeship is unique. And so can you tell us some of the recent highlights you've had in registered apprenticeship in your state growth or new industries or new partners? Well,
1: and I think this is maybe the topic of your discussion. We fought to the Youth Register Apprenticeship Program over a period of about three years. Um, it created paid apprentices and taxpayers on day one. Uh, we wound up sort of creating two different models, and we've actually become embedded into the Department of Education's Work-Based Learning Schema. So that all came from not receiving that expansion grant um, that we did not qualify for. But we decided the key piece of that grant was to reach down into the youth and do more inclusion with them. So we um we did some piloting and I can tell you about that later on in the podcast where you're really looking specifically for those youth questions, but that youth program got a lot of people really excited. Um so it was we didn't particularly target any one industry, but we let it all sort of happen organically.
0: What did, would you say separates Virginia's registered apprenticeship system from different states? registered apprenticeship system. You know, different states have different makeups and different focuses. What, what would separate Virginia from other SAA states or OA?
1: Um, Virginia has a lot of small and medium-sized programs. We're not like other states with lots of huge union programs. We do have our joint apprenticeship committees and training committees, but they're on a smaller scale in Virginia. Uh, But it's very common for us to serve a small family business or a single entrepreneur who just has one apprentice. We are very inclusive. We want every every mom-and-pop shop to feel as comfortable using the model as any large manufacturer or any large shipbuilding entity, because you need them all. Um, you know, pre-COVID, we prided ourselves on, on that face-to-face customer service. We visit each sponsor at the work site to help them learn about registered apprenticeship, and that is where the registration process usually starts. Um, you know, as you know, sometimes you can sell somebody on the program in one or two visits. Other times you're prospecting for two or three years, building that relationship and that trust and just coming in at the right time to do that. Um, we're very strong in the service industries, whereas some states do not mesh with their licensed barbers, cosmetologists, nail technicians, or estheticians. But we always have here our sister agency. Department of Professional and Occupational Regulation, has the licensure authority for those occupations, and they've always preferred the apprenticeship model. So we do have a lot of service trade folk, a lot of building trades, some manufacturing, trying desperately to appeal to IT and healthcare. That's a little bit tougher not to crack there, but you know, we still keep trying.
0: Yeah. And I think that leads perfectly into our next question, Trish. You were talking about the one-on-one service that Virginia prides itself on. We know historically that there usually has been joint and non-joint programs or union and non-union and and construction trades was a big part of registered apprenticeship. But now you have community colleges seeking to be sponsors and intermediaries and uh, training providers and A bunch of different uh, community-based organizations. What would be the first thing that someone interested in starting a program in your state should do? And does it vary based on uh, these different organizations that might be seeking to start a program?
1: I would say the very first thing is to find the regional consultant in your area. On our website, we have a spot that says, employer, find your consultant here. And we've got headshots and bios of all all of those. There's currently 14. I have a vacancy. But for those 15 slots that serve the Commonwealth, you can find a headshot and a bio and get to know the person that's going to serve you before they even come out to your establishment. Now, if it's an intermediary, they always start with me at headquarters so that I can really talk them through what an intermediary is supposed to do. It's still a fairly new concept in Virginia, and uh, frankly, I've not had great success with an intermediary. Some are more committed than others. Others come to it with uh, kind of the wrong reasons. They think if they can sign up as an intermediary, they can capitalize on a lot of funding throughout the nation, and then they find out, no, they actually have to function sort of like an ATR and be that liaison between the state apprenticeship agency. So I have all the intermediaries start with me so I can make sure that they are really going to not disrupt that customer service you know flavor we have in Virginia.
0: We know that the main part of a registered apprenticeship program is the standards document. And so you said that a potential program should reach out to those customer service representatives that you have in the different regions does the potential program sponsors start their standards before they reach out to uh, your regional representatives or at what point in the design process should they contact your office
1: we, we kind of like it if they kind contact us right off the bat when they're, they're thinking about it and, and here's why um our our Paperwork's a little different in Virginia. Decades ago, the division went to what we call our default minimum standard. Rather than having a unique set of standards for every company that comes, we recognize that 29 CFR 29 is the same all across the nation and is the same for every sponsor. So 99% of your standards are the same for every sponsor that comes and participates in registered apprenticeship. I have a four-page document that captures all those very specific regulations in sort of a Reader's Digest form from the national regulation. On top of that, we then have a training program outline so that the company can tell us about their wage scale and the actual occupations. Of course, we have the apprenticeship agreement form, and we have a, a master agreement, which is a little different, but that's basically that commitment to the state that says, I'm going to pay my apprentice, I'm going to keep them safe, I'm going to mentor them, I'm going to supervise them, I'm going to work very hard to complete them out of this program and retain them. So Virginia's process is is very um, streamlined, and our philosophy is that, you know, if I've got 40 HVAC companies, 32 of them are going to be doing very similar things. So we share a lot of information unless it's very proprietary. A lot of this stuff does not need to be reinvented. If there is specific stuff, that's when the consultant's get down in the weeds, and help customize that work process so it's more unique to that particular sponsor. So the design process, sometimes we can make that a very easy, easy package for a new employer or a new sponsor.
0: And so after they develop the standards, we know that that's the crucial part or the most integral part of the registration process. So... Could you summarize what that registration process looks like in your state and about how long it uh, takes and have you done anything as director to streamline that process? And I know this is a long question, but also uh, your apprenticeship council, is it regulatory or advisory in this process?
1: So we did um, move quickly when the regulations changed in '08. The previous director actually um, did move to inform the council that, you know, some changes were being required by the national office. Um, I don't know if it's the congeniality of everyone in Virginia, but the, our council is advisory and they have always put full faith and trust in this agency and division to vet all programs that come. That is helpful because um I am not a micromanager director and uh, everyone that works for us needs to know exactly what kind of programs fly and what do not and we do not have to consult with our commissioners they do not have to consult with me. My program support tech who is also my rapid power user is um authorized to review every new program that comes in because, as you and I both know, there's a lot of similarity with programs. There's not a whole lot of novel, unique things that would make a program ineligible to be a sponsor. So, we are able to sign that program up directly from the consultant to headquarters and the council, uh, we inform council of, of the volume of what we're doing and what we have new coming in, but they don't micromanage us either. They want to see more larger picture program things going on rather than knowing you know, who's new or who's not. Mind you, I've got 2,200 employer sponsors in Virginia, so we have so many small and medium-sized companies that... That's a lot of churn, you know, that, that's a lot going on. So we're really lucky that the council um, is advisory and supportive and um, does not have to micromanage the participation here because that's, you know, basically what I train my state consultants to do is to really demonstrate what makes a program. So they know right off the bat, if somebody's trying to come in with a a program that's too short and doesn't have enough related technical instruction, they're never even going to sign them up. So I've got really good people that that know how to do their job.
0: So if an employer comes with everything together and they're really hell-bent on having a program, what's the average time frame from start to registration for that employer?
1: So I like to say if it's off the shelf, you know, something we've done a million times, like a barber program, you can be signed up in one day.
0: Wow. That's that's process
1: Again, we're, we're in tune with the licensing arm. So there are standards for the barber program. It's the same for every barber program in the state. Nobody needs to even think about that creatively. It is the same if you want to get licensed. As a barber, you go through this apprenticeship program, you do this work process, you do this related technical instruction. Now, there are some choices of the vendors who provide that technical instruction, but it's all competitive and it's all it's all appropriate and eligible for the licensure. So, those types of programs, they can be signed up in a day, no problem.
0: What part of the registration process most frequently gives new programs problems? and? How can potential programs plan for this?
1: I don't know that it's necessarily part of the registration that sometimes is a barrier. What I have found, because Virginia does have several rural areas, we get hung up on a lack of related technical instruction, particular in years three and four of some of our trade programs. Many of the community colleges have been our providers there, and if they don't meet their enrollment numbers, they frequently have to cancel a class. So you couple that with the fact that Virginia still is devoid of a lot of internet. And there are there are ways where we're really not able to get that RTI to stay on track or on schedule. This COVID-19 issue has really made some of these providers pivot and say, well, yeah, I can figure out how to do that. That's still perhaps a problem for someone who is very rural and can't get on. I read a story about um, a college student down in Wise, Virginia, which is southwest corner, and he literally goes, he's put up a tent in his parents' cornfield because that's the only place he can catch his signal to finish up his work at Virginia Tech. So you know there there's really challenges with with the um, internet signals out in a person's residence or even as these colleges try to try to pivot and provide online training. So that's definitely a challenge there. Even in pre COVID times, like I said, without enrollment numbers, technical centers and colleges they have to make the equation work for them mathematically as well. So we really have this need for delivered related technical instruction that suits the employer needs.
0: I want to pivot here a little bit, Trish. And, and, okay. you know, once you have the registered program, uh, there is a tendency for programs to want to reach out and uh, get high school students and younger people involved. And so we know that there has been a lot of conversation nationally around Uh, Youth apprenticeship or pre-apprenticeship or programs catered specifically to youth. And you actually mentioned one that you all created previously. And so in Virginia, do you all do youth apprenticeship or do you all do pre-apprenticeship or do you do a little bit of both?
1: Our pre-apprenticeship programs are sponsored oriented and sponsored delivered. So some of our larger union programs, like an, a- an IBEW right close to town here, use um, national Nika contract money to stand up their own pre-apprenticeship program for their own pipeline. That seems to have worked really well when they take the responsibility for what it is they need, either as a sponsor or maybe as an industry or some other organization might do that. What we found in Virginia, as I said, when we piloted this program, what my assistant director did is, like, sort of made her the lead on this, is she picked five different types of schools throughout the state, some suburban, some urban, some rural, and sort of experimented and tested how to get this model accepted and embraced and adopted all down into the high school level and with the other state agencies involved like Department of Education. So that one year, that was sort of the 2017-2018 school year. That pilot went on and then we did an assessment and sort of rolled it out for real in 2018. Uh, And in that 2018-2019 school year, we served 63 students in about nine or 10 districts. And then in the following year that we just are wrapping up here, we've had 91 students and 21 cities and counties with programs. The key is to treat each of the 95 counties in Virginia as unique and let them tell us what they need. The one thing I train my consultants in very deeply is active listening skills. So we don't go into any school or any employer and say, we're with the government. We've got the solution for you before we even know what it is their their particular problem might be or what their goals might be. So your very rural counties, their goals are keeping those graduates at home. They don't want their high school students moving into Richmond or Fairfax because that's where jobs are. Those little towns are shrinking. So their goal is to keep people there. If you go into an impoverished urban area, their goal is the opposite. They want those kids that have skills, that they can leave public housing and have a different type of life. So without the ability to listen to each group of career and technical educators and the parents and students and those employers that are in that vicinity, we kind of take a one-mile radius zip code approach on our uh, urban areas and then the same sort of thing out in our rural areas is we look and see who's right here. Sometimes they don't realize there's five manufacturers a mile and a half down the road from a sprawling, you know, rural high school. They just don't know each other. So the registered apprenticeship consultants are the facilitators. They're sort of the matchmakers for the staff, the employers, the students, the parents, and the administrators, uh, and they sort of just kind of get it going together in a basic meet and greet or whatever type of event that the school wants to have, and we roll it out from there, and it has worked. Um, now, not every single school has gotten everybody on board to do that, but um, some of the occupations that they're hiring these kids for is waste and freshwater technician. We've got small engine technicians, we have sous chefs, we have carpenters, we have CNC machinists, we have administrative assistants, auto techs, customer service reps, HVAC, and electrical apprentices. Wow.
0: Those those are some great occupations and uh, it seems like you all are very focused on growing uh in this area youth apprenticeship and there seems to be acceptance from the individual school districts to embrace registered apprenticeship. And so, one of the things, Trish, you know, registered apprenticeship has kind of been seen as this Department of Labor program and really separate and apart from formal higher education, which you and I both know that it is not. It is post-secondary education. But sometimes there can be a misalignment in between registered apprenticeship curriculum and Department of Education curriculum. And so, in the programs that you have created, the youth apprenticeship programs that you have created, are the registered apprenticeship programs taking the Department of Education curriculum or is the Department of Education accepting some of that RA curriculum that you all have already developed?
1: That's a great question. And the answer is going to surprise you because the answer is yes to both. Here's why. A couple years ago in Virginia, the Department of Ed took a bunch of surveys of employers in the commonwealth and they learned that while they had some highly educated college seniors coming to join the workforce they weren't necessarily work-based learning oriented in other words they had they weren't really the best employees so they kind of drilled down and looked to see that academia alone doesn't make a good employee in a high school system so they went on a a search to figure out how to amend their diploma requirements. So starting, I believe it's this year, henceforth, you cannot graduate in Virginia without a work-based learning component in your high school diploma. It doesn't matter if you're going after the advanced diploma or a basic diploma. They want to have you prepare to go work and be a contributor wherever it is you go. Before college, during college, after college, you know, they don't really care. So how we figured out we could get it embraced is every, not every single school, but many of them have your career and technical education division. So we sort of tapped into that where there already is electrical, carpentry, culinary, HVAC, any of those sort of traditional ones. We sort of pointed out that if employers hire a student taking those courses already, then the taxpayer is paying for your RTI, and they are also getting their school credit, and it's also occupation-specific. So for that junior, senior year apprentice going to the employer, that is the best deal going. If that is, doesn't exactly work for the industry, like our, I mentioned the wastewater and freshwater technician, that's not a CPE course. Those are industry specific. We have several water authorities that have brought in these young people. They've put them in the specific computer program world that is specific to wastewater and freshwater. And in, when they reach 18, they will start working with the hazardous chemical side of the house. But that is, you're basically registered apprenticeship in a mini-me style, you know? So you're still having the employer inform you as to what that occupation needs. So Department of Ed said, you know what, both of those work. They're both work-based learning. So we are actually embedded in their work-based learning guide that says students, parents, teachers, principals, your kids got to do one of these things. <laughs> in yeah, order to get that's, out that's, so,
0: that's some really um, innovative stuff
1: we provide options you know we listened in those piloted um, early years and the water authority was very eager to come on but they said well there's no CTE that trains these kids in but we can train them with online courses from an industry out here in San Diego, California they train the entire industry nationwide so um, again it's just being unique and listening to what their needs are and letting them work that way. And what's important, I think what, um, you know, they they get to recognize that it is an organic way to function. So the, the school isn't being dictated to. So they like that. The employers realize that once they get their legs with this and develop the relationships, they might have a good pipeline for the next decade or two or three. So you do a little bit of work up front to do that, and it kind of gets its own legs and and works itself.
0: When you talk about these youth registered apprenticeship programs, you named a number of occupations, and you you also named strategies for rural versus strategies for urban. And so when you're creating these youth programs, do you have a different approach for creating youth programs than regular uh, registered apprenticeship programs?
1: Not really. Um, the schools do have one additional registration form that is a training agreement. And the reason they have that is because um, the parent needs to sign. We're we're dealing with people under 18 and they cannot legally sign their apprenticeship agreement form without parent or guardian. So we want to make sure that the parent and guardian is on board with this work-based learning venture that their student is going through. And then that helps provide some accountability um, in school. If the academics aren't being kept up by the student, they're not going to be able to stay in that apprenticeship. So it it helps keep them on track as well.
0: Trish, you talked a little bit earlier about the IBW and the pre-apprenticeship program that they have developed and and how some of your program sponsors have developed pre-apprenticeship programs. Has there ever been a case where you have... Uh, let's say, a community-based organization that has some training and they want to be a pre-apprenticeship, but they're not connected to a program, uh, have you had any situations where you were able to get them connected to a program or is that something that your office uh, does or helps to build those pathways?
1: We haven't had too many requests along those lines. Like I said, the pre-apprenticeship programs are running here are very much led by the sponsor who needs them, IBEW had candidates that could not pass their assessment test to even get into that first step. Uh, They wanted to work with them and get them more employable for the electrical program, so they had a specific purpose for their pre-apprenticeship program. Um, I have worked with a lot of organizations that work with homeless vets, and we've discussed how perhaps they, they could come up with a pre-apprenticeship program. Um, others who are in transportation desert areas, they, they recognize that they aren't quite in the employability range they want them to be in. Um, again, it's, it's sort of unique, and if someone comes to me with a great idea, we'll flesh it out and see if we can make it work.
0: I want to shift again a little bit here, Trish. We've been talking about youth apprenticeship and pre-apprenticeship, and the conversation has really been around high school students and K-12. But we know that there's a great population of opportunity youth, those who are not attached to the educational system, whether it be K-12 or uh, post-secondary education. And so have you developed any strategies to reach out to opportunity uh, youth?
1: We've got, um, we've got some relationships developing with an organization that handles all the aging out foster youth in Virginia. That has just started, and it actually runs through the United Methodist Family Services System. Um, I had learned that there's about 500 youth that age out at age 18 every year. And they really don't have any guidance or anywhere to go. They're not attached to a family situation. That is a, a new g- group of demographics that we have not meshed with before. So we're we're finding our way of how to get that message to those young people that way. Um, the city of Richmond has an Office of Community Wealth Building that does a great job with all kinds of folks who are in poverty situations. So, we already do some cross-referrals that way. They, too, have to deal with folks that may not have the literacy they need to to jump into an apprenticeship-type program. So, they may do some employability workforce training first and then make some references to programs that that they know about um, through us um so this this is sort of how when we're reaching out to to youth that need us, we try to figure out where they are connected and work through that channel, so that way everyone's kind of in their lane delivering the best of everything they can deliver. The key is making good referrals, and that's what we're we're going to be focusing on a little bit more this year, particularly with our um expansion grant is having other people in workforce and other entities refer those people either to apprenticeship or um, to sponsors.
0: And do you find that working with these partners uh, help expand diversity in in your registered apprenticeship programs?
1: Well, we're very inclusive here at this division. Um, Anybody that is interested in apprenticeship can come and, and explore that with us. I have noticed in some of the workforce development areas, they each have their own strategic plan, and sometimes those are focused on high wage or, um, you know, high need areas. We have a lot of uh, vacancies for cybersecurity people right now, so there's some workforce areas that really want to focus on that. And that's great and all, but if you're talking about, you know, out-of-school youth, uh, with some barriers, they are not going to easily slide into that realm. So it, sometimes we're not finding a connection in with the partners because they are, I hate to say it, but not as inclusive. They are trying to meet a different agenda or a different goal. With us here, if they want to do the model of registered apprenticeship, and they're going to pay and they're going to mentor and supervise and keep that apprentice safe, we say yes all day long.
0: Sounds great, Trish. And so the final question I kind of want to ask you is, when you discuss opportunity youth for the purposes of WeO, we're talking about 16 to 24-year-olds. And in that, you kind of have two groups. You have your 16 to 19-year-olds who maybe uh, recently graduated from high school or recently uh, dropped out, but either one way or the other, they're kind of connected to the education system. And you have the then you have the twenty to twenty four year olds who they may have went to some form of post secondary uh, education, but didn't finish, and so now they're kind of just trying to fill their way. and And that's a whole different group of individuals to try to reach. Have you thought about any strategies, or have you worked with any of the partners that you've discussed? to reach these two different groups of Opportunity Youth?
1: Well, the, in the first group, we have made um, many presentations to school counselors. There's all different factions of school counselors, you know, um, especially in a state like Virginia. It's, you know, we have a lot of students and a lot of divisions. We try to have those school counselors bring registered apprenticeship as one of the tools that they can use when they are guiding their young people. Now, everyone knows for decades, again, the pendulum swang to the side of, you know, you're going to push everybody into a four-year degree because that's the only thing that matters. Now, post-COVID, you can see that it matters very much if you know how to do something, make something, fix something, build something, design something. And that's not necessarily coming from your four-year degree. So um, we're trying to make sure everyone knows these are all just options. And most times apprentices are going to go back to obtain some higher education for their own purposes at a time when it suits them. They may want to become an entrepreneur and and branch out from their sponsor and start their own business. That's perfectly acceptable. That That just expands the um, abilities and needs in every community. So um, those that are counseling students um, need these... They need to understand this tool. Registered apprenticeship is a tool. It's a way to get a skill set into an employee, and you can't ever take that away from them. So they will always have that journey worker credential. They will always have that ability uh, to... Fix or make or do whatever it is. And like I said, what we see right now is it's the doers and makers and fixers out there. They're kind of keeping this economy humming along. You know, us paper pushers, we're not so essential, you know?
0: (laughs) It's true. Well, Trish, I I just want to thank you for your time today and and giving us a little bit of insight into the registered apprenticeship system in Virginia uh, is there anything that you would like to add before we go today, Trish?
1: Um, it's just uh, everyone should be very open-minded about it and recognize that it is very customizable and very unique to everybody. We enjoy it down here. Like I said, we're we're here 82 years, and uh, a lot of apprentices have come through the doors.
0: Thank you, Trish. All Thanks right.
1: for having me, Joseph.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of JFF's Apprenticeship by the State with me, your host, Joseph Hollins. We hope that you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to you coming back to hear more of the innovative things that apprenticeship directors from across the country are doing. We're signing off.